You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest, bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest podcast. My name is Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Jennifer Chesick. She is author of The Psilocybin Handbook for Women. We're going to talk about the worlds of psychedelics. We're going to talk about psilocybin. We're going to talk about really where we are in terms of not only understanding it from a medical point of view, but a social point of view, and really tackle this issue of, I guess I'll call it gender, of sex, and how these things play from a physiological point of view, from a social point of view. I always find this fascinating. I think as many people know that have gotten into kind of psychedelics and general kind of therapy models and drug development, we have uh, kind of an unfortunate history of assuming kind of the male gender, the male body when it comes to doing research, when it comes to doing testing. And it really, um, I think, is it puts a real kind of challenge, I think, for a lot of women looking at treatments and therapies and drugs. And we're going to talk to Jennifer a little bit about the general history of this and how this has happened in psychedelics and what she's uncovered and the work that she's doing and the content and message that she's getting out and the work that she's been focused on. So with all that, I'm excited for this to uh, have this conversation. And Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we kind of dive into the book and what you're doing with psychedelics and women, let's get a little background. How, I guess, how did you get into this topic? How do you get into psychedelics? What's the backstory? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a medical journalist and a fact checker. And so I've constantly been writing about health and really had a focus on women's health quite a bit. And in recent years, I've tackled a few stories on psychedelics for (laughs) different news outlets. And so it seemed like a great idea to really merge the two, the talking about psilocybin and then that intersection with women's health. It seems like an important topic right now as more and more people are getting into psychedelics. Yeah. And, you know, I guess give us a little bit of the, I guess, framework here, because as I think, think about this kind of topic, Topic or think about these issues. I mean, I kind of see there. There's physiological ones, you know, have to do with you know how does psilocybin affect the body and you know the nature of women's bodies and hormone cycles and things like that. But also kind of the social aspect of okay, well, you know, how are we kind of bringing psilocybin or psychedelics? How does it affect women in terms of you know social norms and expectations? You know, whether it's you know gender norms or gender identity or you know, constructs that we have around certain roles for genders. I guess, how do you organize this and how, like, what's the scope that you're really trying to cover in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think one thing I really want to bring attention to is this idea that, so that obviously people are getting into psychedelics and I would have assumed, you know, I would have made a weird assumption that it's more men that are into psychedelics. But mm-hmm. what I found out during my initial research is that more women are using some psychedelics more frequently than men, which was really interesting to me. And so I wanted to dig a little deeper on that. And it turns out that while men tend to use psychedelics a little bit more recreationally, and there's nothing wrong with that, it's that women are using psychedelics to actually self-treat conditions. And, um, you know, that was that part was not surprising to me because 
when you think about the state of women's health and the way that women have been treated in the mainstream medical system, we often get left behind. So one thing I always yes. like to bring up is that women were largely excluded from early stage clinical trials until the 1990s. And that has had some dramatic ramifications for us. So I always like to put this in context. In 1998, we got a drug for male sexual dysfunction. Everyone knows what that was. It's, mm -hmm. it's Viagra. Yep. And at that point in time, we actually didn't even have a complete picture of what the clitoris looks like. So there's this total internal structure to the clitoris yeah. as well as this little external part and that didn't happen until 2005 which really wasn't that long ago and then um it wasn't until 2015 that women got a drug for female sexual dysfunction so that's 17 years yeah. after men got a drug and it's pretty alarming when you think about the stats on female sexual dysfunction so 40% of people reproductive age that are assigned female at birth have some type of female sexual dysfunction. And that rate goes up dramatically once reaching menopause, it goes up to 85%. So it's pretty alarming. And, you know, if we also think about just people assigned female at birth are two to three times more likely to develop PTSD than those assigned male at birth. And chronic pain conditions are much more prevalent in people assigned female at birth. But yet we're finding that healthcare providers and often people in general are more likely to take women's pain much less seriously than men. So it's not a surprise to me that women are turning to psychedelics to self-treat. And so that's why it really seemed like this, this book was important because we do have different bodies. And, you know, especially with the menstrual cycle, psilocybin may affect that. And so it's important for women on every topic related to their health to have very, really dedicated content that's for them. I mean, well, so much to talk here. I mean, I guess part of this is just general education, right? In terms mm -hmm. of understanding like how like what the history has been around drug development and kind of the assumption of kind of the male body in, in a lot of this stuff and how that's kind of impacted the drugs that we have, but also just kind of understanding, you know, what, what does it mean or how is it different from, you know, female body in terms of how drugs kind of affect, uh, you know, the body? I mean, we talked about the menstrual cycle, the hormonal cycle. I mean, what else is kind of at play or what are, what are the things that we need to can think about when we're dealing with, you know, sex and gender when it comes to understanding any kind of drug or therapeutic process or therapeutic model. Absolutely. I mean, we just have different contexts for women. Of course, you mentioned the menstrual cycle, but earlier you were mentioning mentioning socially. Yeah. Um, definitely our lived experiences are different than men. I mean, not always, but certain contexts there are. And so in that realm, we need to be thinking about psychedelics and, you know, the history that women have gone through in their personal lives, because all of that matters. And it matters for a lot of different medical conditions, too. Like, for example, we can talk about menopause later, but your life history actually matters for how much like your more severe menopause symptoms can occur for certain reasons. So we can talk okay. about that. But it's just there's all these different contexts with that. And then in terms of psychedelics, I really wanted to cover content related to sex um, in terms of, you know, sexual function, which I just mm -hmm. talked about a little bit, but also in terms of sexual assault within the psychedelic community, which is also a problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's occurring occasionally and, you know, we really don't know the extent of the issue, but women are disproportionately affected by sexual assault. Of course, met anyone of any gender can be sexually assaulted. Yeah. So yeah. I don't want to discount that. It's just that we do know that women are disproportionately affected. And this is in terms of the actual therapeutic process and kind of the, the situation 
that you know kind of treatment happens, being open to conditions or, or abuse or, or having assault happen, you know, in these in these therapeutic practices. Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar, but there's this really great podcast that had come out on. It was called Cover Story Power Trip, and it was done by New York Magazine. And this woman, her name is Dr. Lily K. Ross. She brought to light a lot of the issues that are occurring. So it's sometimes that guides or therapists and shamans, all of that uh, have been sexually assaulting people in psychedelic sessions. And that can happen because, well, certainly people can just be predatory, of course, but psychedelics also make us feel much more connected to people than we perhaps maybe truly are in the moment. Mm -hmm. And of course, they make us extremely vulnerable. And so some people have been preying on that in psychedelic sessions, and there has been there have been allegations of sexual assault. And so just really important to be aware of that and then to understand what steps can you take to help prevent that or help talk about consent before going into a psychedelic mm-hmm. session. I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I can't remember the stats offhand, but I do remember some very shocking data around just general therapy, you know, and therapists, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the the likelihood or, or the the data around uh, the number of therapists that commit sexual assault as as part of just the general therapy process. But you, so you throw psychedelics in there and I can imagine it only makes it more complicated and, and more likely that you're going to have these kind of abuse situations. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really frustrating because, you know, people are turning to psychedelics to treat trauma. And yet, in some cases, people are being more traumatized via yeah. these sessions. No, that's not the case everywhere. There are great guides, therapists, yeah. and shamans out yeah. there that have your best interests in mind and will, will not do that. But just something I want people to be aware of. And how, I guess, do you see this as, you know, developing better kind of therapeutic processes and protocols and kind of uh, checks and balances around this? Is this educating women that are looking to engage in these kind of therapies and better kind of educate them and arm them with, you know, kind of awareness and strategies and stuff to, to protect themselves? I mean, what's the, what's the solution around these things? Yeah, it's tough because we don't yet have, you know, solid solutions. I think we're still building all of these frameworks. So, you know, there are certainly good people out there doing great things in terms of creating guidelines for psychedelic assisted therapy so that practitioners are, you know, following strict ethics and things like that. So we've got organizations working on that. And, you know, I did talk to a really incredible therapist. She is kind of doing some work surrounding guidelines regarding consent. So I'm hoping we get to see her work. Her name is Natalie Villanova, and I hope we get to see her work soon on, you know, some of these things that she's putting out there to create these guidelines. And of course, guidelines are being created by different organizations as well. And but really, you know, also just making people aware of it is just super important. Let's talk a little bit about the actual therapies or ways in which women are using psychedelics, you know, to help themselves, you know, medically, psychologically, socially. What are you finding? I mean, you mentioned that the data, the research shows that women are using psychedelics more for kind of health purposes or wellness purposes. What are the situations that you're finding women are using this for? What are the applications? Give us a little sense of what you've uncovered. Yeah. So it seems like women are turning to psychedelics for PTSD, other forms of trauma, depression, and anxiety. And of course, the general population is doing that as well. 
But then I think also women are turning to psychedelics to self-treat conditions that disproportionately affect them, only affect them or affect them differently. And so some of those conditions might be premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is PMDD for short, endometriosis, which is the condition that I actually have and can talk about that a little bit. But try to think of what else. So again, and you know, oh, menopause for sure, uh-huh. which is a, obviously is not a condition, it's a life phase, yeah, but yeah. it has a lot of symptoms that can be really frustrating. And so women are turning to psychedelics for that as well. It's just ultimately that they are looking for some type of treatment to find relief because it seems like oftentimes women don't get that from the mainstream medical system. They're not finding relief for conditions. So for example, endometriosis, I mentioned that, but I have that. So one in 10 people assigned female at birth have endometriosis. So that's 10%. And then occasionally men can get endometriosis, but it's pretty rare. But the the National Institutes of Health designated less than 0.1% of its research funding to studying endometriosis, and that was in 2022. I don't know the stats for 2023 yet, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's pretty alarming that 10% of women have endometriosis and the NIH is not dedicating money to that research, and we don't have a cure, or we really don't have adequate treatments for that. And so that's just an example of where Certainly, I've been frustrated with the medical system. And I understand, you know, we just don't have treatments, but why aren't we studying it? Why is progress not being made? There's been very little progress made since I was diagnosed in the early 2000s. So, and why, like, why do you think this is? Is this just financially, like, like we can't, people can't make money on treating this? Is this because the people that have this condition aren't vocal or don't have advocates or like, like, what's the underlying kind of thinking or? kind of cause for not addressing this particular condition. Yeah, I would say misogyny in the medical yeah. community. It's endometriosis is treated as a menstrual condition, like a menstrual yeah. disorder, but it's really I think people are more aligning with the idea that it's an autoimmune disorder. I mean, of course men can get endometriosis. Again, yeah. that's rare. But I think it's just misogyny. Doctors aren't focusing on conditions that disproportionately affect women and especially ones that they associate with the menstrual cycle. And doctors really don't. So just because it's a gynecologist doesn't mean the doctor has studied endometriosis. It's not really covered in medical school other than maybe mentioned. So, you know, it's just a really frustrating thing. And, you know, we see this with other conditions too, such as like premenstrual dysphoric disorder and things like that, or menstrual migraine. You know, they're just not as studied as closely as conditions that, you know, dramatically affect men. So, yeah, misogyny. Yeah. And the solution here is getting more women into medicine, better training. Like what like what are the root sort of solutions to some of these things? Yeah, I mean, I would say you hit on one of them would be it would be great, certainly, if we did have more women in the medical community and that may help. But we need to change the training in medical school to cover yeah. conditions like this and not just say, oh, this is an OB-GYN issue, uh, things like that. So, you know, I don't have all the solutions. I wish I did. But, you know, again, women are, are more likely to be gaslit at the doctor's office, too. And so there's just so much misogyny and that needs to go away. Or this is idea where, you know, historically women would go in for childbirth and Sometimes doctors would insert a incision leading to, so from the the vaginal area to the anus along the perineum to help prevent worse tearing. And this has now been proven that that doesn't actually work well. 
But the doctors would then, when they restitched the woman up after childbirth, they would give her a, what's called a husband stitch to make the, the vagina area tighter for the husband, uh, you know, after childbirth. Jeez. And that's so yeah. misogynistic. And it's, you know, occasionally it's considered medical malpractice now. Yeah. Um, but that that only occurred recently where that change happened. So, you know, there were still women having this happen as of the last decade. And so that that's alarming that, you know, it wasn't something that they would ask women about like, oh, hey, do you want this stitch? They would, you know, mention yeah. it to the husband with a wink, wink, and then do it. You know, and yeah. that's that's just an example of the prevalent the mis how prevalent misogyny is in the medical community, and it just needs to stop. Yeah, and you know, figuring out those systemic causes, and you know, how do we how do we not only just retrain, but kind of develop a whole kind of fundamental philosophy around health yes. and and the body and sexuality, and I mean, it, you know, obviously we're in a situation where the medical profession is kind of by default male. <laughs> you know, yeah. We've created this one this one category of you know. Uh, uh, OBGYN, which is kind of covering women, but you know, in in fact, it's so it's so broad. It's a it's a it's an important kind of paradigm that we're working within right now. Yeah, I'm curious in terms of the psychedelics themselves. Like, what are you finding is the sort of impact? Is this you know that is giving kind of psychological relief or giving some kind of psychological experience that helps with managing and navigating some of these conditions? Is it actually the kind of neuroplasticity of the psychedelics or kind of what we sort of suspect psychedelics are doing from a kind of neuroplasticity point of view. I mean, is this physiological and medical or is this more psychological and awareness that is impacting or, or that is kind of the benefit of using psychedelics for some of these conditions? That's a great question. I really think that it's both things. So in terms of the psychological aspect, you know, certainly psychedelics are being studied for things like eating disorders where people have a distorted body image. Right now, there, there's clinical trials going on for anorexia nervosa. And so in that context, I would say that it, you know, looking at more of a psychological thing. And I always like to explain the idea, just this nutshell of how, how, why do psychedelics work to give us more awareness about ourselves and stuff like that. And so researchers came up with this really great model to explain that. And it's called the Rebus model. And that stands for relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. And <laughs> that was created by Dr. Robin Carhart Harris and Dr. Carl J. Friston. And <laughs> this idea of what does that mean, the Rebus model? So if we think about when we're kids, our brains are really flexible or in trope. And what I mean by that is we haven't really formed our belief systems or pathways of thinking about ourselves or how the world around us operates. It's super flexible because we're just still forming our identities. But as yeah. we get into adulthood, that belief system or the pathways of thinking about ourselves and the world around us become very rigid. And so the researchers, in addition to describing the Rebus model, they came up with this really great analogy that I love to share. And that is, so if we're in normal states of consciousness, our brains, again, are very rigid, and we can think of it as being like a frozen pond. Now, if you were trying to get a new belief into your head, maybe it's about your body image or something else, you know, just a negative belief that you have about yourself, and you're trying to change that and by with a new belief about yourself, if you think of that as being a rock, and then you try to drop it on that frozen pond, it just hits the ice and, you know, it doesn't really do anything. No. Uh, but if you're in a under a, on psychedelics, your, your, your mind is much more entropic and flexible, a lot like when we are children. And so we have more accessibility for getting a, a new belief into it. So for now, if you think of your brain on psychedelics as being 
a solid pond, such as water, now you take that rock into the form of a new belief, it drops in and it causes a ripple effect. And so it's just the way that psychedelic ultimately make us have this more malleability in our minds and yeah. more flexible. And so, yeah, we just have more access to getting a new belief system in there. So certainly the psychological component, but also, you know, there's some interesting things with the menstrual cycle, which we can get into, yeah. um, is that certainly women are finding that after doing psychedelics, they're, and mainly I'm focusing on hearing from people about psilocybin, but they're finding that their menstrual cycles have come early after trying a psychedelic. And certainly there's potential that uh, psychedelics may re-regulate the menstrual cycle. So some researchers out of Johns Hopkins University, they did a case study on three women. And I think it was that two of the women used psychedelic, I mean, I used psilocybin. They all used a psychedelic, but two of the women used psilocybin. And okay. um, the researchers did find that they reported a couple of different things, their cycles coming early or this re-regulation after a time of irregularity or even a period of um, where they weren't getting their menstrual cycles. Uh And so there's definitely some potential there. And if people want to know the mechanisms related to that, it's that, so we have, I mean, obviously researchers need to figure this out, but the, the general idea or the theory is that, so we have our menstrual cycles occur along what's called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. And so okay. what I mean by that and that axis is that as one hormone kicks off, it tells another hormone what to do in this you know, really cool feedback loop. And that's kind yeah. of how our menstrual cycles operate. But we also have another axis called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And that is our stress response axis. Yeah. And so when we take a psychedelic, that activates serotonin receptors along that axis and which affects that axis is what I should be saying. And those axes overlap, of course, with the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. And we already know that our stress response can impact our menstrual cycles and vice versa. Mm -hmm. When we're on our menstrual cycle, certainly that can cause us more stress or leading up to our menstrual cycle. We may feel more stress or, or you know just have some difficulties. And so we know those cycles affect each other from previous research not related to psychedelics, but there is some indication that likely uh, uh, doing a journey on, psych- on psilocybin would impact the menstrual cycle in some way or vice versa, where you are in your menstrual cycle may matter in terms of like when you do a journey and whether that journey is has really good benefits for you or if you may ha- have a negative experience and things like that. So researchers still are still digging deeper. But I did talk to an indigenous wisdom expert and okay. um, she was great because and I think it's so important to really bring in that indigenous wisdom because science is this concept of doing something over and over again to reproduce the same results. And we do have indigenous wisdom where people have used psychedelics for centuries, essentially, in indigenous communities and have, you know, used things over and over again and produced the same results. So I think leaning on that is super important, even as we are gaining all this new science about psychedelics. But what she had told me was that People, if they are if they are trying to do a deeper journey on psychedelics, so a macro dose, you would want to do that closer to ovulation rather than closer to your menstrual cycle or when you get your period, I mean. And the reason for that is because we have more energy in our bodies around that time of ovulation than mm-hmm. when we get towards the menstrual cycle where our bodies become a little bit more insulin resistant just naturally in that luteal phase. And so a lot of times people before a psychedelic session will do some fasting or, and that may just be in the hours before their journey or 
it could even be for several days before a journey and and you're you're going to have a lot more difficulty doing that in the in the luteal phase than yeah, if you sure. were right at ovulation so she recommended that and then she also recommended that if people are doing some microdosing to see how that affects their menstrual cycle or perhaps to manage symptoms of a condition such as premenstrual dysphoric disorder, that to microdose for three months, follow whatever protocol you want to um, in terms of, you know, there's like Fatiman protocol, there's all these different protocols that yeah. you can do. And if, but whatever one you choose, stick with it for three months and, you know, keeping track of like how your symptoms are to see how it affects you because you really need three months to figure, to decide how, if it's working or not for you. It's interesting. I mean, I, I can't help but feel like we're taking this area of psychedelics, which is still very unknown, and there's a lot of pieces we really don't understand. And then we're taking the menstrual and hormonal cycle, which it sounds like we still don't completely understand. We're kind right? of mashing that by word. And it's like there's unknown and unknown. We're just creating more unknowns. I mean, where where do you think the research really needs to go or, or where do we need to really understand better? you know, on one or both of these axes to really make some improvements and, and really create some more effective solutions? Yeah, that's also a great question. I, I, you know, I was thinking about how I had recently just written three articles on the menstrual cycle related to menopause, like what's happening with your hormones? Why are these causing these symptoms yeah. like hot flashes or weight gain and things like that? And there's all this intersection with metabolic health. But it, as I was writing these really intense, like research intensive articles, I was surprised at the lack of information out there on menopause, like actual in actual yeah. medical studies. I, you know, it's just very poorly understood what happens during menopause. And I think the same is true in terms of the menstrual cycle. I think it's still very poorly understood and, you know, in the research. And so, you know, I think as we move forward studying new therapies, you know, such as psychedelics, and I realize they're not new therapies, but we are you know, moving forward with potentially having FDA approval at some point for like MDMA and eventually maybe psilocybin. That's the dreamy dream. But but as we move forward with that, we need to be studying how these things affect the menstrual cycle. And I'm glad some researchers are looking into that. I hope they continue. But, you know, we, we can't just move forward with new therapies and not take these things into consideration as we have in the past. That's what's happened in the past is that that's just been discounted in the male body. It's just treated as women and men's bodies are the same, you know, yeah. and that's just not true. Yeah. Well, or that we assume the female body is like the male body, so we'll use the male body as a, right, as a, yeah. as a standard. Uh, so I guess where do we get, I mean, it's sort of leaders in, I guess, psychedelic development, you know, whether it's drug development, therapeutic models, I mean, what, what do we need to be keeping in mind or what do we need to kind of do to kind of stay aware of this issue, appreciate kind of what we know and what we don't know and where where do we need to kind of you know acknowledge that there is work to be done and and help that work actually happen in the industry sure yeah i think surveys are really great so if organizations are sending out surveys to really get what what are people's experiences with psychedelics and i'd love to see this like a huge survey of women or you know people who are assigned female at birth doing a survey on how a psychedelic affected them and then researchers taking that and trying to create some type of study based on that data you know so and then i just think that it's important that organizations are paying attention to these aspects as we you know move forward with research we also need to be bringing that indigenous wisdom in as i mentioned before and i think we've historically just not done that with a lot of research on other things and so i think that if we make this change now 
you know, that will be that would be beneficial for the the psychedelic movement, I guess. You know, such a weird thing to say a psychedelic movement because it happened before I know. <laughs> so many years ago and now it's happening again. The resurgence you know? of psychedelics in, yeah. in our society and, and medicine. Right. Uh, Jennifer, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the book, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Absolutely. So the book is available anywhere books are sold. I always encourage people to order from their independent bookstore, but uh-huh. you, you know, you can order anywhere. And and then I'm a you can find me on all the social channels. My handle is at Jen Chessick. So that's J-E-N-C-H-E-S-A-K. And then my website is jenniferchessick.com. So you can certainly find me there and follow my work. Um, and I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll make sure all the links and handles are in the show notes so people can get that. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast.